sin. Have you ever been playing a game with the family or friends, let's say Scrabble, or maybe it's a, a backyard barbecue version of volleyball or something like that, and then there's a question of what counts? Was that ball on the line or was it actually in bounds? Is that a word or is that not actually a word, right? And maybe you have family members that get a little excited about those kind of things, right? Maybe a little competitive. It's the idea of what counts, what actually counts. What about salvation? What counts for salvation? What is the most important thing in regards to our salvation, We've been doing a deep dive starting last week into the doctrine of justification. In other words, God declaring us innocent of the guilt of our sins through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, and that is only by our faith in that work. And so here's the million-dollar question then. What counts for justification? What counts? What is the big deal that Paul has been talking about? Is it how many good things we do to other or do for others? How much money we give to the church, or is it resisting the urge to cuss to ourselves when someone's doing 27 miles an hour all the way out Route 515? Is it just a generic, uh, I'll try to be a good person? Is that what counts to be justified? Or is it like like a savings account, like we keep just racking up points and then maybe at some point we'll magically be declared justified? I hope you guys know it does not work like any of that. And so what counts for justification? Paul is going to continue today. So if you're not there already, head over to Romans chapter 4. We are making our way through the book of Romans. If you're visiting here this morning, which a few of you are, thank you so much for visiting with us. We preach what's called expositionally. And so we walk through a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse and we uncover, we expose the meaning of the text And then the Holy Spirit has the job of applying that to our lives. We don't come to the text with our own ideas and then try to fit that idea into the Word of God. We let the Word of God speak, and then we apply it to ourselves. And so we are journeying through the book of Romans. Last week, we started to look at, again, the the critical and foundational doctrine of justification by faith. The idea, again, always defining terms, justification meaning our declaration that God has declared us innocent of our sins. We cannot do this ourselves by any attempt at obeying God's law because we've already broken the law. Last week we learned that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Justification by faith is then a gift from our abundantly gracious God. But what about God's justice, his glory? was violated when we sinned, when his creation turned from him. His, his holiness needs to be vindicated. And in order to solve that problem, he came with the solution of giving us Jesus, his own son, so that he maintains his justice. So he's just, but he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Not only does he demand a punishment for sin, he provides that punishment for sin himself. In his son, Jesus Christ. And what about the law? The moral law of God being still in effect as our map, as our muzzle, as our mirror. And justification by faith is the only foundation for obeying the law. For afterwards, after we have been born again, so to speak, and become a Christian, then we move on to obeying the law for our growth and for our sanctification. As we said in our intro to Romans many weeks ago, 
All of this letter is a deep dive into the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan to justify his people. That's what Romans is about. It's about the gospel. And so this week is no exception. Paul is going to go back to his Jewish roots to defend justification by faith, starting with Father Abraham himself. Look again at Romans 4 in verse 1. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is going to use two examples to defend his theory, which is the biblical theory of justification by faith. The first one is Abraham, and the second one is going to be David. So starting with Abraham, right? the central point of contention here is still the same. How can a sinful human being be declared innocent in the sight of a perfectly holy God? That's what every religion is trying to figure out, and the Bible has a very specific answer for it. Right? The Jews would say there's one way, obedience to the law. You do as much as you can to make God happy with you, and maybe, just maybe, he'll justify you. Paul maintains something completely opposite, and the opposite of every other religion on the planet, which is it is through faith alone, by grace alone, and the work of Christ alone. And so that is the contention. And so he brings in for, for witness number one, exhibit number one, the big dog, Abraham himself, Father Abraham. Paul asks rhetorically, well, let's just ask our forefather Abraham. What was his experience with justification? And we can figure that out, and Paul answers his own question. He says if he was justified by obedience to the law, then he'd have lots to boast about, but not before God. He would only be boasting in himself, like, look at how awesome I am and how much of the law I obeyed, much like the Pharisees in Jesus' time. But he said he wouldn't have that boast before God. Because that can't count before God, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no boasting. Remember last week at verse 27 in chapter 3, where boasting is excluded. We can't boast. It's impossible. He makes this clear. He says he doesn't have anything to boast about before God. Instead, he quotes all the way back in Genesis and says, Abraham rather believed God, and it was credited. It was counted to him as righteousness. He says clearly, Abraham, yeah, Father Abraham, he was justified by faith too. That's what the scripture says. But let's not take Paul's summary here. Let's go back to Genesis itself and go back to the beginning of the call of Father Abraham. Let's go back to Genesis. Well, that's a big chunk of pages there. Genesis chapter 12. The call of Abraham says this, then called Abram, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, Abram at that time, was a pagan from thousands and thousands of miles away in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Which soon became, later on, of Babylon. About 2,000 miles away from what would be the promised land. There's nothing special about Abraham at all. We see that in the text. God just finds Abraham and says to him, go. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, just go to a place that I will tell you. Get your stuff and go. 
And he says something crazier. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing so much so that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Father Abraham simply obeys. He goes. He goes to the promised land of Israel, then inhabited, of course, by the Canaanites. And and God makes a covenant with him there in the land of Israel. And we see a little bit. We read a little bit of it, or actually we read it from our Old Testament reading. But let's read it again because it's so foundational. So Genesis 15 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and looked, and he said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here we go. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. God comes to Abram in a vision. He reiterates his promise to him that he gave in chapter 12 before he started the journey. And he says, you will be great and all of the families of the world will be blessed through your offspring. And Abram protests and he says, ah, small problem, I don't have any kids, and I'm old, and my wife is also super old, and it doesn't look really good for us to have kids. So I've cooked up this other plan for this other guy to be my heir, and let's just go with that. And Yahweh says, that's a bad plan. We're not going to do that plan. You will, in fact, have an heir. Your very son will be your heir, and then all of the families will be blessed through him, through the line of Israel. And then it says, simply, Abraham believed God. And it counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that famous verse here, again in verse 9 and verse 22, and also in Galatians and also in the book of James. And so when the Bible repeats something so important, we know that it's foundational to what we believe. It's important because it shows the plan of God. And it shows the plan of God is consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is unchanging in that. It's a common Christian misunderstanding, right? That people in the Old Testament were saved one way and people in the New Testament were saved another way. The God of the Old Testament was this cranky old guy with an anger problem, right? And the God of the New Testament is like kind of hippie, loving, peace, and everybody's okay. That's not the God of the Bible. And from beginning to end, it is faith that counts for justification. And so here's the first point. Justification by faith has always been the plan. Justification by faith has always been the plan. And Paul goes all the way back to Abram to prove that. Now, some of you may be thinking, um, Pastor Dr. Mike, faith in what? I don't understand. Like, Jesus isn't going to come for thousands of years. So how on earth could Abram be blessed or be justified by faith? And that's where you have to remember that the Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, with the one difference that they didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and believed that God would send someone to save them from their sins. And so they placed their faith in the future Messiah. We, on the other hand, New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, know who that is. He's revealed himself. He is Jesus, the Son of God, as the Messiah. We know 
that he's come, he's lived a perfect life, he's done the work on the cross, and he's resurrected triumphantly from the grave. So they were saved looking ahead to the Messiah. We are saved or justified by looking backwards in time to the work of Jesus Christ, revealed as the Messiah. And we know how this promise to Abram was played out. Jesus Christ, of course, the Messiah descended from the line of Abraham, from the line of Israel, from the line of David, fulfilling the prophets. He was the one that they said would come. He did the work of God that he had from him. And that's how all the nations of the world are then blessed through the nation of Israel. Paul, again, picks this up in the book of Galatians, just so you guys don't think I'm making this up. Galatians 3, in verse 8, he says specifically, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God says back there, even in Genesis 15 and Genesis 12, it was the gospel. Justification by faith has always been the plan. One study Bible puts it like this. The church is the heir to the Abrahamic covenant. Christ commissions the church to point to him, the promised son, and thereby blesses all the families of the earth. Since he's won for them his new promised land where all believers would dwell with God forever. Abram didn't have any of the details, but he trusted God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Because church, justification by faith is, has always been the plan. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. Why? Because our God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. What he has said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? What God says, he will do. And he never changes. He's always faithful. And so church, can this God, this unchanging, perfect, holy God, be trusted with our Tuesdays? Be trusted with the things in life that we find difficult? Be trusted in our lives when we experience loss, when we grieve. Can he, can he be trusted to help us raise our kids in a God-glorifying manner? Can he help us glorify God at school and at work? If he's not been faithful, then what hope do we have? But we know through the testimony of Scripture that he's been faithful. And he will continue to be faithful because he never changes. Church, passages like this help us know our God. And one of his attributes is his unchangeableness. His, as theologians call it, his immutability. And Tozer puts it this way in Knowledge of the Holy. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. And coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to mercy, misery, and need, as well as love and faith. Why is this so important? Why is this so important for us to grasp the fact that we worship a perfect God who never changes? And his plan of salvation and justification proves that. Because I don't know if you notice this or not, but everywhere else around us is what? Is change. Is things that happen, right? Losses. Grief. Anybody ha ever had a day that just completely turned 180 degrees on a dime in five seconds? That's what happens. We see it. People fail us. 
right? All around us is constant change and usually not for the better, right? The enemy causes change. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Systems fail us and change. Our hearts change. Our feelings change. God never changes. I often thank God. I am so thankful that you are not like me. Fickle sometimes, weak, stressed out, anxious. He's never like that. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine never ever being stressed out or anxious or out of options or don't know what to do? God always knows what to do. God is always in control. Tozer again says this, in God, no change is possible. In men, change is impossible to escape. We're always changing. We're always faced with change. God never changes. And indeed, is there anything more important to our eternal destiny than God unchanging? I mean, to be kind of silly for a minute, imagine getting to heaven thinking we are trusting in Jesus Christ by faith for the salvation of our sins. And God said, no, nah, I changed that. I, actually, I do care. Actually, it is about good deeds. And uh, you are uh, hurting in the good deeds department. So, sorry, it's not going to work out. Right? God never changes. Justification by faith has always been the plan. And God is unchanging. Let's see, as we move forward, where Paul takes us next, next as he looks at another example. Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to come, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul continues to develop his case here. He uses an example from life, this common sense experience. Let's say you have a job and you get paid. Do you go to your boss with your paycheck in hand looking completely surprised? Thank you. You shouldn't have. I mean, I have the pleasure of working here, right? And then you pay me on top of that? I did not expect that. That is such a gift. Thank you. No, crazy people do that, right? That's why you work. You work for money. You expect to get paid. If you don't get paid, you're going to ask to get paid. Imagine being a business owner, right? Completing whatever project you're doing or whatever client wanted you to do, whatever the client wanted you to do, and then they give you a check. Imagine being surprised by that. No, you're, you're going to get paid. It's your due. It is your legal obligation. You did a work. You did a job, and you need to get paid for it. That's not how it works with salvation. That's not how it works with justification, because Paul says, but if you, you do not work, right, but yet you trust in God who justifies the, watch this, the ungodly, that's a different story. Right? Imagine just someone walks up to you, you didn't do any work, and they give you money. That's a gift. You probably think there's a catch attached, which there usually is. We don't work for your justification as God. We don't have anything that's due us. We're not banking anything. Saying, did you see the way I helped the old lady across the street, God? Did you see that 20 I put in the giving box? Remember that, you know, because I got some coming back to me now, right? No, that, that's not how it works, Paul says. And he says it's a very particular kind of faith. 
It's faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. That's what is counted as righteousness. Like Abraham, was he godly? No, not at all. He was a pagan from a land 2,000 miles away. He wasn't Jewish. There was no Israel yet. There was no law yet. There was nothing. And God plucked him from obscurity. The law wouldn't exist for hundreds of years, but he was ungodly. And God justified him by faith. Like us, there was a time in our lives when we were ungodly, meaning without God or against God or an enemy of God, and through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross by propitiating the wrath of God. You guys know that big Bible word now from last week. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. We, who were ungodly, are now godly. Now we are justified. We go from the guilty column to the innocent column. And Paul calls his second witness here. If you're going to call two witnesses in all of Judaism, right, it's a pretty good choice to pick Father Abraham and then go to King David. So he he then proceeds with King David and he quotes Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 in context says it this way. This is a psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Who's writing this? King David. Does King David have sins that he needed to be forgiven of? Boatloads of them. Not like junior varsity sins. Like super varsity sins. Like David the adulterer. David, who then got a woman pregnant and then had her husband murdered to cover it up. That, that kind of David. You better believe he's thankful that he got his sins forgiven. And as we looked at it last week, just very, very briefly, right, we saw that the prophet Nathan, right, when he confronted David on the sin of Bathsheba, David repented immediately. And Nathan said, your sin has been taken away. What do you mean your sin's been taken away? And I'm sure he went to his, his little closet and wrote this psalm immediately because he's very happy that his sin was taken away. How was his sin taken away? Was there any sacrifice? Was there any mention of sacrifice? Was there anything that was given to God? Was there, any, was there payment made? No. Why? Romans 3, we said last week, he was looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Once again, we see what? It is faith. He's justified by faith. David was justified by faith as well. Like Abraham, he trusted God and he was justified of massive sin. So second point I'll say like this. Justification by faith forgives the unforgivable. Justification by faith forgives the unforgivable. People can sin against each other in horrific ways. And there are some serious consequences for some sins. Some of us in this room struggle with sins committed against us. Some serious sins, maybe abuse or sexual sin or assault. Maybe having a loved one murdered. Like that is serious sin, right? How on earth, how is it possible that that could be made right? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Only through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, what we celebrated at the table, the divine, perfect, eternal, sinless blood of Jesus Christ is the only way 
that that such a sin could be justified. Think about the depth of that truth, right? God justifies the ungodly. On one hand, that makes sense, right? On one hand, that's like, sure, okay, people are without God, they're ungodly, so they need to be justified and, you know, made godly. That makes sense. But on the other, the other end, right, maybe the more American way is like, no, 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 that, that's not how that works. I don't want God to justify the ungodly. I want God to liquefy the ungodly. I want God to destroy the ungodly. I want him to zap them out of existence. That's not what the text says. God justifies the ungodly. If that's breaking your brain, it should. It shows the jaw-dropping mercy and grace of the Son of God. He justifies the ungodly. In church... I think we should come back to this question of application every week. Do we get this? And when I say get this, I mean, do we get this? Like, is this part of our meditation? That we understand the depth of what that means? First, do we know it? And this is doctrine. Some people are like, ah, doctrine, I don't like doctrine. No, we need doctrine. We need to understand the facts of what this is. That's why I'm a doctrine stickler. We have to know the truth of God first. It's actual facts and words. We have to know it. Doctrine's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be cherished because that leads us to the second part. We need to be meditating on the truths of this doctrine. We need to be thinking about this. To meditate on something. If you can worry, you can meditate, right? It means to just think about it over and over again. Toss it around in your mind. Change your thoughts to think about God's attributes. Think about that. When when your Tuesday blows up, right? Think about how unchangeable our God is and what he's done to justify you, right? We think about the sin that we have been forgiven of and we meditate on that. And third, I would say pray for these truths to be buried in your hearts. Pray for the Spirit to impress this truth upon your heart. Pray through some of the great prayers of Scripture. Pray through the Psalms. Pray through some of the things in Ephesians. Pick up a book like the Valley of Vision and pray through some of the Puritans' prayers. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Think about these things. Come to prayer meeting tonight downstairs, right here, 6 p.m. Shameless plug. Pray through these things. And then we can begin to hopefully appreciate more of what has been done for us in Christ. And Paul is going to land the plane this morning in one more practical argument. Let's jump back to our main text in Romans 4 and verse 9. Is this blessing, he asks, he gets a ton of rhetorical questions today. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Again, he's, he's anticipating all of their arguments and beating them to the punch. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then how was it counted to him? Or or really, when was it? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, 
but who will also walk in the footsteps of the father that of our father Abraham before he was circumcised. A lot of circumcision in that passage, right? Again, if you're new to all this, please don't leave. Like this is think think of circumcision not as a medical procedure. Think of it as Paul just defined it, right? The sign and the seal of who God is, right? Israel was given the sign of circumcision as an identity marker for who they were. But that was never meant to save. It was a sign that pointed to a greater reality that we'll learn by faith. Paul asks again another rhetorical question in the line of that because as this kind of badge of identity, Israel was very proud of this. He says, a quick question, uh, my Jewish brothers. Uh, when did this blessing of Abraham's justification occur in terms of circumcision. And he quotes the, the passage again just to kind of head him off at the past and say, because we already, we already read Genesis 15 that said Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. So he's, he's, he's seeding the bed here, right? He's saying this is how it's going to happen anyway. Right? He says, so here's the million dollar question. Was that before? Was he justified before or after circumcision? Paul says, guess what? Abraham, our forefather, was justified before he was circumcised. Upwards of maybe 15 to 20 years before circumcision was ever even given to Israel as a sign and seal of the covenant. Hundreds of years before the law itself. So Paul says, hey, uh, hmm, just a quick question. Was it circumcision? Was it? Was it really? No, because it didn't exist in that way, shape, or form. So guess what? Abraham, it could not have been through obedience to the law. It was rather through faith once again. But there was a plan. And Paul's beautiful in the way that he wraps this up. He lays out the plan. He said it was justification before circumcision. Just put that off to the side because that's not what counts for justification. This is a sign and a seal of your covenant, but that's not what counts for justification. And he says it point blank. I love it when the Bible actually tells us what it means. Look in verse um, 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. He says, guess what? Abraham's the father of everybody. How many people sung Father Abraham in youth group or VBS, right? We are. (laughs) That's what that means, right? It's a weird song, but that's what that means. We are all actually grafted into Abraham. Why? By faith. It has nothing to do with the law. This was the plan of God's redemption because the plan of God's redemption was always global. It was never meant to stick with just Israel, right? All of the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. So guess what? This is what he says. That's why it doesn't depend on the law. It depends on faith. Just like Abraham, just like David. That's why. And guess what? That then blows the doors wide open to anyone who would come to him by faith. So there's our third point. Justification by faith justifies all who come to God by faith. All. This has to be massively encouraging to us no matter who we are, what we've done. God will justify anyone who comes to him by faith in Jesus Christ. I think of the one simple verse in Acts quoting the prophet Joel in Acts 2.21 where he simply says, it'll come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
doesn't matter what background you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter any of that because it's not about you. It's not about what you've done or who you are. It's about Jesus. It's about justification through faith in him. And I truly hope if you're here today and you do not understand that, that no matter what you've done, some people walk around with so much guilt for the things that they have done. Understand that he forgives the unforgivable and that he saves all who come to him. He's not going to look at you and say, "Mm, well, I don't know. You've done a lot of bad stuff. I'll have to think about it and get back to you. No. He saves all who come to him by faith. Now, of course, in context, he's talking about the faithful Jewishness of the Jews here, and he makes that clear in verse 12. He's like, there, elsewhere he says that not all of Israel is Israel, meaning just because you got the name badge, right, doesn't mean that you're actually understanding the covenant. Doesn't mean that you're justified, right? He's like, there is a remnant, and we'll talk about that in about six years when we get to chapter 11, right? We're not going to be six years. <laughs> I hope not, right? Realize there's going to be a remnant who's going to understand, who's going to get it, who's going to see <clears throat> that there is the Messiah named Jesus Christ, and it's by faith. And so you're also, Abraham's also the father of those people who will understand that, who will walk faithfully. And that leads us to us, church, do we understand that, and are we walking faithfully? Are we walking this, like the faithful ones who get it, that he's talking about in verse 12, several times elsewhere, Paul challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. We don't deserve this. We were justified by faith. Are we walking in a manner of what we've received? And I want us to look as we land this plane here this morning at one overarching point. Look at how many times, of course, and I said it in my, my intro, how many times Paul uses the words counted or counted as. Well, I counted. See what I did there? I counted. I thought that'd be funnier than it was. Eight <laughs> times. There's, <laughs> you guys okay today? Are you all right? All right, I counted eight times in the passage where he uses that term counted. It's the word legitimai. It means to conclude. It means to calculate. It means to determine, to figure out if it counts or not. Think about that. The next time you're having an argument over Scrabble, you're legitimizing, right? You know, is this, is this actually a point or not? Right? If a passage says something again eight times, it should be pretty important. Specifically, how are we counted? What, come back to our original question, what counts for justification? And Paul has given us a master class of defense that it's only faith. Overwhelming answer, faith alone. So the big idea, simple one, faith is the only thing that counts for justification. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that counts for justification. And again, church, I hope you realize how different this is, how different biblical Christianity is from every other religion on the planet. We are the only ones, of course, that we believe is exclusive truth because we are exclusively different than any other religion on the planet. And the day that somebody says to you that all religions are basically the same, no, they're not. Because what God gives his own son to satisfy his own justice. What God says, it's not what you do, but what I have done. And all you need to do is believe and then live like it. 
Abraham, we have nothing like Abraham. We have nothing to offer God, yet he lavishes grace on us. Sinners who have declared ourselves to be our own kings, to set up our own little sub-kingdoms in rebellion, and he justifies us by faith. Our justification from the guilt of our sin could never possibly come from ourselves. We need, as Luther says, that alien righteousness outside ourselves, right? We don't have anything to bring to this situation. That's why it has to be by faith in Jesus Christ, and that's always been the plan. God forgives us when we place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and the blood that we celebrated here today and his body broken, even the unforgivable sins that seem unforgivable. And this God church is gracious. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Justifies all who come to him by faith. And so how can we possibly be declared innocent from the guilt of our sin? We spent two weeks on this so far. Again, the central doctrine of our faith is justification. If we get that wrong, we get everything wrong. But saying this, right? Saying faith is the only thing that counts for justification it's a little dangerous, right? Because sometimes we can play right into that kind of evangelical squishiness, right? Where it's just like, I, all I gotta do is have faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, right? Well, yes, for justification. Faith is what counts for justification. But the other side of the coin is sanctification. The other side of the coin is, are we living out our justification. When somebody know you're actually justified by looking at your life. And so while those works don't count for justification, we go and we work and we get busy. And so the danger of me saying that faith is the only thing that counts for justification is we walk out of here and then realize or think falsely that it doesn't matter how we live. It absolutely matters how we live. Absolutely. Paul said that last week. We don't throw away the law. The law is foundational to us in how we live. We have to balance that with the rest of Scripture, and you have to realize the way this passage is broken up, that's what this says. But we can't lose sight of the rest of the picture of Scripture, where yes, we need holiness. And God provides it through faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. The faith that saves is alone, and as the Reformers say, the it's also never alone. It's always accompanied by works as evidence. But church, as we come back to the truth of the mercy, the grace and justice of God through tremendous personal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that we can be truly, truly justified, declared innocent of our sins through faith alone. No other religion on the planet says that. Nothing we could ever do would even count one millimeter of a point for justification. But God does it through Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, your love. We thank you for your grace in this truth that Paul masterfully lays out for us this morning through the example of Abraham and David or through the, the example that it is not the law that could justify us. Lord, we are so thankful that you never change. Help us to place more of our faith in who you are. And Lord, may we live lives that are truly worthy as we grow more and more into the image of Jesus, look more and more like him and less like sin in our actual lives. Would you be glorified? We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.